The Guardian, live at the Edinburgh Festival 2009. Hi, I'm Dominic West. Thanks a lot for listening to The Guardian live at the Guild of Balloon 2009. This is the last show in the series. Sarah Millican, Peter Duncan, Bridget Christie, Carl Donnelly, Stephen Carlin and Ivo were also on, so get comfy and let your ears enjoy the show. Welcome to our final podcast recorded here at the nightclub of the Gilded Balloon. It's The Guardian live at the Edinburgh Festival 2009. I'm Miles Jupp. <laughs> Sarah Millican has been with us throughout this festival and she's back because you, the audience, seem to like her. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Sarah Millican. Sarah Millican, what a joy to see you. Oh, are you lying? A, a little. Now, um, <laughs> generally, are you well? Are you keeping your mental health in good check? Um, there are indications that my mental health isn't as good as I thought it was. Oh, really? <laughs> what are they? Um, I went shopping the other day. Um, a friend of mine's had a baby, and I went shopping to get some baby clothes, and I bought some little baby clothes and things. And I, while I've never wanted kids, and I still don't want kids, I, I really like tiny clothes. Um, and I'd, I'd forgotten how much I liked tiny clothes. So I bought some baby clothes and some little tops for my friend and his baby, and then I saw the cutest pair of jeans, uh, so I bought them for me. <laughs> I think I might be mentally ill. <laughs> But it'd be good because, like, when I'm at home, I can, you know, if a baby comes round and he's been caught in the rain or, you know. <laughs> I mean, I don't need to turn sinister and, like, what? Oh, better get you out of those wet things. That's a bit. No. <laughs> I think they will be useful. Goodness <laughs> me. And from, from Mark's as well, outstanding value, £6. Yeah, absolutely. Tax, tax deductible, now you've mentioned it. Um, <laughs> oh, I thought of that. Oh, can I buy some? See, I do worry that if I buy more, then that, that I really have to draw the line now, don't I? I can have one pair of tiny jeans, and I'm not allowed anything else. Because then if I've got, like, shoes and a hat and a top and stuff, then that's... Yeah. It could, it could start to look then, worryingly like a shrine. Yeah. Well, yeah, because um, then... And if a baby goes missing in the area, it's going to look really sus. I've got a whole outfit, but no baby. Uh, no, I'm so, fine, honest. Uh, now, Sarah, we'll have a, a quick little recap. Uh, Millican's Minute, uh, very, it's a wonderful part of our podcast, uh, where you go and ask a bunch of daft questions uh, against the clock to some fringe celebrities. Now, how, how's that been going for you? It's been going really well. It's been fun. You've interviewed who? Who have you interviewed? Uh, I've interviewed uh, the Chippendales, uh, Peter Duncan, Marcus Brigstock, and uh, Lionel Blay. Well, uh, let's see how they all got on. Anna, for one final time, can you please bring on the leaderboard? rather a lot there, Anna. Still, no tan lines. Very good. Now, um... <laughs> uh, so we'll just go through them there. At the bottom, you've got uh, Lionel Blair. Ah, oh, but he is, like, 70 million years old, isn't he? <laughs> Bless him. Uh, third place, uh, uh, Marcus Brigstock. The, and he really wanted to beat the Chippendales, and he'll be good to know that he hasn't. <laughs> so second place, Chippendales, 13. So the winner of Millican's Minute 2009, uh, quite clearly, is Peter Duncan. And guess what, Sarah? 
Peter Duncan, he's, he's here now. No! Yeah. yeah. Wow! <laughs> we put you in different dressing rooms so you wouldn't find out. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Peter Duncan! <laughs> Peter Duncan, we do have a, 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 a prize for you that I'm going to pass. This, this is the Millikan's Minute prize. Uh, it can be presented to you by Miss Millikan herself. Oh, look. Here we are. Thank you so much. So it's five to five time for Blue Peter, look. It's <laughs> one I made earlier. <laughs> look, I've, won, I've never won anything. It's fantastic. Ever since I got my gold badge. Look at that. That's terrific. It, I mean, I don't want to say that you shouldn't take the credit for it, Sarah, but it was, in fact, made by the producer's daughter, Molly. Um, was it really? Oh, how good is she? And it was out of a Stella box. She's a big drink. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Duncan, thank you so much for being here. Fast and dangerous. Thank you very much. Peter Duncan. Christie and Dominic West are still to come, but we're going to interject with a bit of stand-up comedy, uh, considered to be the best newcomer at the Edinburgh Comedy Awards this year. He was nominated as one of the best newcomers at the Edinburgh Comedy Awards this year. We will edit that appropriately. <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome Carl Donnelly. <laughs> Hooray! That was about as much excitement as I could muster in this morning. Um, so yes, uh, my name's Carl Donnelly. I've been nominated for the Best Newcomer Award. Hey, but, um, this goes out on Monday after I've been announced, so probably still just be a nominee. But there we go. Uh, no, so it's nice to be here. Uh, my name is Carl. Uh, I'm going to tell you a quick story actually before I start about how I got started out in stand-up because I didn't realise right until the Edinburgh Festival that how I started out in stand-up is actually an interesting story. I thought it was the same as everyone else's, right? But this is how it happened. Uh, when I was born, my parents were very well-respected sort of famous comedians, but just after I was born, they got killed by an evil Dark Lord comedian. <laughs> and, um, I, so I had to grow up with my uncle and aunt who were dicks, but uh, luckily, when I was 11, I... Uh, I got given a scholarship to a school for gifted comedians and uh, I can ace that shit. Um, there we go. Did you about Harry Potter, mate? <laughs> Look at you, you're like, did you get that? Oh, cool. Sorry, you looked to me like very vague. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so that was a little, little nice joke there, wasn't it? To open with about Harry Potter. Um, I've got more jokes. Not about Harry Potter. Um, I want to tell you a little story that a reviewer uh, referred to as the funniest joke in my show. Uh, and I just want to check if you agree. Uh, and I do it about five minutes into my show. So essentially anyone who read that review and then came to my show literally heard it and thought, right, well, ten minutes in, done. Let's fucking just get out of here and go get a snack. Uh, this is apparently the funniest joke in my show. So uh, this is a true story as well. It's about one of the most awkward situations I've ever had. Uh, it's uh, happened about three weeks before the Edinburgh festival uh, where I, I'm quite a sort of laid back and sort of I'm quite easily distracted uh, and I did something that should never happen accidentally right I accidentally got into a stranger's car now <laughs> uh, how this happened was my friend dropped me off at some shops and then drove his car down to park up uh, so that when I came out I just jump in what I didn't account for was him parking two cars in front of a very similar car and me seeing the first one that matched roughly the same shape and color and thinking that'll do so <laughs> I came out of the shops and I saw this car and I hopped in uh, and then I turned to my right and for about two and a half seconds I was convinced my friend had morphed into a 50-year-old Chinese man, right? 
Now, I imagine the etiquette in these scenarios is to say something like, I'm terribly sorry, mate, I've got into your car by accident. I'm going to hop out now and have a good day, right? But what you shouldn't say is what I said, which made it sound like a hostage situation, because this was my exact words. Where's Chris? <laughs> Where's Chris? As if he's going to go, he's in the boot, give me 50 quid or he's dead. Uh, Funniest joke in my show. Uh, five minutes in. Uh, all right, so I'll tell you one uh, final little bit. I'll tell you a story about going to the Subway sandwich shop. Is that, am, I allowed, am I allowed to name brands? Good, because Subway is shit. No, uh, no, Subway sandwich. I went to a Subway sandwich shop uh, recently, and I, I've never had this. I don't know anyone else that's had this experience, right? Just quickly, give me a cheer if you've been to a Subway sandwich shop. Okay, um, I went into a Subway sandwich shop. I'm the only person in that shop. And I get to the counter, and the guy behind there says, how can I help you? I say, can I have a six-inch meatball marinara, please? That's a fine order. But then he breaks the news to me. Sorry, mate, we're out of bread at the moment. <laughs> really? <laughs> what did he expect me to order at that point? Like, I was wandering past me, because I could really do have a cup of sweet corn right now. Uh, but what annoyed me about this wasn't the no bread. I can deal with no bread. If he opens with no bread, he shouldn't have let me open my mouth. Um, literally, before I got to the counter, he should have just gone, no bread! And then that's it. But he let me say the full name of the sandwich uninterrupted, as if I was going to go, yeah, can I have a six-inch meatball marinara? But rather than bread, um, I've got an idea, right? <laughs> Is it all right if I just walk along the front with my mouth open and you chuck the ingredients in as I pass? <laughs> Uh, that one did not get funniest joke in my show. Um, hey, no, right, guys. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you. You've got a, a great show ahead of you, so enjoy that. Uh, I've been Carl Donnelly. Bye-bye. My next guest show, My Daily Mail Hell, has been described as an affectionate expose of a showbiz gossip column. Uh, she's also starring in School for Scandal alongside Lionel Blair, Marcus Brigstock and Stephen K. Amos. Please welcome the wonderful Bridget Christie. <laughs> it says on my script, oh, I've seen your press release. But actually, I've done more than that. I've seen the show, uh, and it's a, it's a terrific show. I really, I've been, I saw a preview of it as well of it in London in about, yeah, in about May, and then I came uh, at the beginning of the festival. It, it, on a, it's a very exciting show, because you... You worked for how many years? Five years I was there. At the Daily Mail? At the Daily Mail, on the gossip column, yeah. <laughs> and what? <laughs> I wasn't very good, don't hate me, I didn't do anyone... <laughs> I, could, I was so rubbish, I couldn't do anyone over, so... What, what, were, your, what were your responsibilities there for? Well, I was employed as a, as a temp, right, to do, like, typing and admin. But if there weren't enough proper journalists to cover all the events that we had to go to, then they'd send me out to try and get a story. But I was just rubbish. <laughs> so I couldn't do it. At all. I mean, how, how, what was the extent of your rubbishness? What was oh, I just didn't know what to ask. You know, you had to ask them personal questions about their private lives or try and get something on them. And I just used to say, you know, oh, I like your shoes, you know. <laughs> or, is there anything you want to plug? Or just rubbish. I asked Nick Robinson, who's the BBC's political editor, if he had any mad fans. <laughs> He's a political editor. <laughs> Mick Jagger, or like an even younger rock star. He's a political editor. And he said, no. <laughs> and then that was it. <laughs> then he walked off. Yeah, it wasn't very good. Because you met, you met some <laughs> remarkable people, though, in that time. I mean, you met, uh, you, you know, Liam Gallagher. You met, um, yeah, what's the name of that Spanish remarkable. chap? Antonio Banderas. Antonio Banderas. So what, what did you ask Antonio? Oh, that was at the premiere, uh, premiere of Shrek 2. Right? Have you seen Shrek? You've seen Shrek 2. He was the voice of the cat. And he was a brilliant cat, right? The best <laughs> voice of a cat I've ever heard, I think. And um, 
yeah, really one of the best. And, um, <laughs> and I said to him, how did you portray a cat so well? Which I think was a really good question <laughs> to ask an actor. And he said, I loved playing a cat. I have two cats and 72 lions. <laughs> I said, uh, uh, he said, yeah, I've just been to my ranch, a, a ranch with my mother-in-law. We've got 72 lions, right? And I was, because I was looking through my notebook, you have to keep your notebooks for five years, and I found it in an old suitcase, that's why I decided to do the show. And I was looking at it and I thought, 72 lions? What? He's obviously lying. There aren't 72 lions in the whole world, so how can he have all of them? But, see, I didn't, lions aren't extinct. He could have had 72. <laughs> but also, someone came up to me after a show and said, that's really weird that Antonio Banderas has got 72 lions, because Brian Blessed's got 72 lions as well. What the hell's going on? <laughs> That's a specific number of lions to have, isn't it? 72. Oh. Is it some sort of strange sort of Hollywood Masonic thing? Why yes. there's a certain congregation of people that get together. If we get 72 lions, you're part of our gang. 72 lions, yeah, you're in. You can get slightly odd jobs in sci-fi films. Yeah. <laughs> How good would that be? Uh, now, you, you, uh, I was at university with uh, someone that you interviewed. Uh, I'd never met him, uh, except once on Children in Need. Uh, classy. Uh, but you, met, you were privileged enough to meet Darius Dinesh. Scotland's oh, yeah, own Darius Dinesh. But you know what? I didn't know who he, wa who he was, right? Because I don't really watch telly or anything. And this was a, a big sort of charity do. And I was talking to all the other reporters. And Darius came up to me and said, uh, Hello, is there anything you want to ask me? And I said, Well, who are you? I wasn't trying to be rude. And he said, I'm, da I'm Darius, you know, I'm Darius Danesh. And I went, <laughs> And he went from Pop Idol, you know, and I went, oh, that singing thing. And he said, yeah, and I said, oh, well, how come you're here, you know? And he said, I've just got a single out, you know, I've, ju I've just done a video. And I went, oh, well, what was that like? And he said, um, <laughs> he said, I used Brad Pitt's horse in my video, Rodrigo. It was going to be very difficult for him to lie down because horses don't ever lie down. But we got on so well together that I had a word with him and he just lay down. <laughs> What do you think he said? And then, then he said, um, I will be spending Christmas at home in Glasgow with my parents, but my girlfriend won't be joining me. As I said, the, these were all unused scoops. I, I, I wasn't, they were all, none of them were used. Yeah, so. <laughs> Just, it just wasn't very good. Well, I, th it. I think yes. it's wonderful they're all out in the public eye now, uh, Bridget. Uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us. The wonderful Pleasure. Bridget Christie! Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Dominic West is about to step onto this stage, but first, uh, some more stand-up. He's one of Stuart Lee's top favourite comedians, one of my top five. Please welcome Stephen Carlin! Afternoon, everyone. Hello. Uh, it's, it's weird to be doing a gig at this uh, time in the afternoon. I, actually, I think the last time I performed at this early was in a school nativity play. <laughs> actually, that was a, my first ever gig, school nativity play, when I was uh, five years old and uh, played the part of Joseph, uh, Joseph Stalin. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was a bit of a, a method actor in those days. <laughs> yeah, so a few of my classmates did die, <laughs> needlessly. So that, is, uh, that was my Xmas. Uh, nativity play. I, I'm not, I don't say Christmas, I'm an Xmas person. Xmas, where we celebrate the birth of the baby X. 
who cannot be named for legal reasons. <laughs> I've been taken into care after being found born in a stable. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I know, I know Jesus in the stables 2,000 years ago and things have changed a lot, but come on, that sort of treatment was unacceptable even by the standards of those days. You know, we've had all the excuses about why it happened. There's no room at the inn. Bethlehem was busy. Well, you know what I say? They should have left earlier. <laughs> of course it was going to be busy. It was Christmas time. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we're on the subject, I think much of Joseph, Jesus' dad, or his stepdad, <laughs> yeah, let's give him his proper title here, just accepts the word of the innkeeper, no room at the end, and he's, oh, doesn't try to argue with the guy, doesn't try to bribe him, doesn't try to persuade him. Now, you can say what you like about Joseph Stalin, <laughs> but you would have found room in that inn. <laughs> the, the problem with Christmas is this, people think it's a, a time of celebration, and actually it's a minefield. Christmas is absolutely full of pitfalls. For example, take that, that Christmas carol, the, the 12 days of Christmas, you know the one that goes on, on the fifth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me, five gold rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Now, I'll put it to you, if you receive those gifts, you do not have a true love, you have a psycho stalker. Because <laughs> those are not the actions of a healthy mind, are they? Those are the actions of a wacko. I mean, the first day of Christmas alone should be enough to start alarm bells ringing. If you receive a partridge in a pear tree, you're quite within your rights to phone up the police and say, excuse me, just received a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> Believe it might be part of a wider hate campaign. Huh? <laughs> I wouldn't thank you for a partridge in a pear tree. You can probably tell by now I'm a bit of a free spirit. I'd like to come and go as I please. The last thing I need is to be tied down by a partridge. <laughs> huh? Down, down the pub with my mates, having a few drinks, having a laugh, saying, oh, Stephen, you'd like another round? Yeah, I'd love to, guys, but... Uh, Better get back to the partridge. <laughs> maybe, maybe some of you guys fear commitment. Maybe some of you guys fear being tied down to a woman. But just imagine how much more demeaning to your sense of masculinity it is when an object squeezing the life force out of you is a member of the pheasant community. <laughs> now, it doesn't stop there, does it? All the way up, every day, a sick, twisted present, up to the 12th day of Christmas. 12 lords are leaping. 12 lords. 12 members of the House of Lords in your living room unelected, <laughs> wholly appointed, jumping up and down in your carpet without even the decency of a democratic mandate. <laughs> You're not under the rules of the House of Lords. They, they only actually need to turn up in your living room, sign the daily attendance book, piss off for the rest of the day and they'll get a full day's fee. So in reality, you only have three Lords jumping up and down in your carpet, but you will get billed for all 12. <laughs> Jed, but that's all for me. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Stephen Carlin. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> Now, ladies and gentlemen, our final guest uh, of the series, uh, an actor who has appeared in countless Hollywood movies, uh, a list of phenomenal plays. He's on Eminem's most recent album. Uh, he played Baltimore police detective Jimmy McNulty in HBO television police drama The Wire. Please welcome Dominic West! <laughs> Dominic, thank you very much indeed, indeed for being here. How uh, you've just arrived in Edinburgh, is that right? No, I got here. I got here last night, but I um, 
I went to see something by mistake when you sent the car to pick me up, so uh, that's probably why you thought I just arrived. Oh, right. But I got here. Yeah, no, we're extremely d- delighted to see you. I really... <laughs> and a little surprised. Uh, but <laughs> have you been having a good time, then, thus far, other than uh, uh, diary confusion? Uh, yeah, lovely time, thanks. Yeah, they put me in Leith. Right. In a hotel in, in Leith, which is miles away. But uh, there's the Royal Yacht Britannia there, so I've been having a wild time. <laughs> did, you, did you get a chance to walk the mean streets of Leith at all? Uh, a, a little bit, yeah. It's, it's quite sort of yuppified, dandified now, I think. It used to be quite mean, and now it's um, like, uh, like everywhere else. <laughs> and why, uh, why are you in Edinburgh at the moment? What have you, what have you come specifically to do, other than... Other than uh, this? Well, well I've, 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 I've sort of spent a whole summer... I, I spent five years in Baltimore uh, doing the show called The Wire, and uh, no-one ever saw it, and I sort of kept going back thinking, what the hell am I missing out on my children's childhood and going to Baltimore every year for, for no reason? And then suddenly everyone's starting to watch it, so I thought, well, I'll take the summer off and go to all these festivals and just bask in all the glories. <laughs> getting my 15 minutes. I'm aware it may not be around by next summer's festivals as well. It's quite extraordinary the way that it was. When did you finish filming it, The Wire? Two years ago. And so you had two years thinking, right, that was it, and then it suddenly was, they had that sort of, uh, almost the way it sort of trickled uh, into Britain through, through DVD sales, and that people were saying, you must see this, sort of yeah. handing it around, that sort of thing. And, and suddenly it became, it just suddenly grew, grew back again. And were you, were you surprised when suddenly you're like, oh, that thing I finished and I thought it was done. It's, it's just gone nuts again. Well, I, well I, I suppose I was really. I mean, I was, I was, I was, I was delighted, you know. I, um, well, I mean, it, it, it sort of hit in America, and then I'd come home and, you know, have enjoyed Basque in wonderful anonymity again, <laughs> which was always what I wanted, and uh, <laughs> such a relief to get home and not be bothered in the street. And then, um, then I was shouting at a woman in a car in where I live in London, and... Um, you mad? Where are you out the fucking way? What are you doing? You fucking and she went, my God, you're McNulty, and I suddenly realised I was a star. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was the most humiliating moment of my recent history. And what, what is Baltimore like then? I mean, what the Baltimore we see is is through the wire. I've not, for instance, holidayed there. Um, <laughs> so. It's a sort of American equivalent of Leicester. (laughs) Fucking Leicester. Leicester is the biggest skid mark in the giant shithole that is Britain's East Midlands. (laughs) Yeah. Precisely. It's not getting edited out, Richard. It's a fucking hole. Uh, Northamptonshire is is lovely. Um, No. But you, like, a lot of the filming, therefore, did you need a lot of security people around you in, in Baltimore? I mean, say when you're... Uh, uh, is it called the low right? Is it the pits, is it? Where the, um, you know, the, old, the old red tops and stuff, when they're all selling those? <laughs> yeah, the projects. Uh, the projects. projects, very good, yeah. very good. Yeah. Uh, so you would, you would go into there, like those scenes, say, where they would just be... Because you know, a lot of it's shot sometimes from rooftops, where the situation where, you know, you two will be fine. Can you just wander in there and do that scene quickly? We don't really want to have to get, you know, uh, security people involved. Uh, well, no, it wasn't that. I mean, no, the only time we ever had difficulty from residents was when we were in the posh areas in the suburbs and they'd be coming out and you know screaming at us because they wanted 
to be paid money to use up there. But when we were actually in the projects, they, they all watched the show. They all pirated HBO, and HBO kept going, no one's watching the show, but actually thousands of people watched it, <laughs> pirating it. And, uh, but they, they, loved, they, they loved the show, so they, we never really had any trouble from them. And I'd never had any trouble because no one... I, mean, <laughs> I remember I, I shared a trailer once with Method Man from the Wu-Tang Clan, and... Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm quite an old fan of his, and, uh, <laughs> and I walked out of my trailer, and, and was the sea of young project life was around our trailer. I thought, oh my God, this is great! And it, obviously, it was all for Method Man. No one, no one noticed me. The only time I then walked down the streets, like, and they went, "Oh, you're, you're that other guy. You're, you're, you're the other guy." Uh, I said, "Yes, yes, I am." And he went, "Yeah, the crybaby, that bitch ass." <laughs> and I went up to. Uh, Clark Peter, I said, what's a bitch ass? And they, they found it very, a bitch ass basically is a, is a homosexual, I think. I don't know what it is, but it's uh, someone who cries all the time. And one thing, the guy said to me, one thing you mustn't do if you're American cop is cry. And of course, all I've been trying to do, being a sort of English actor, was trying to be emotional and crying, and it was a fatal mistake. But there you go. I'm a bitch ass. And have you, have you had a chance to uh, interact then with any of the sort of British police force since you're... Yeah, I, I was coming out of Queen's Park tube station. This guy, plain clothes, badged me, showed me his badge, and I thought, oh, Christ, what have I got on me? And, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he was, yeah, he was an English policeman. And he said, yeah, we, we all watch it. And we all, um, you know, we, we, I do similar stuff to you. We do surveillance on drug gangs and stuff. We just wish we had the sort of resources that you guys had. And I thought the whole point of the wire was that the police don't have any resources and they're still on typewriters and don't have computers and stuff. And so, uh, obviously, the, 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 you know, Bob, the Queen's Park Constabulary are even worse off. <laughs> well, it's such a poor area. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the Kilburn side. Uh, now, you, uh, you're, you're praised often for your, the, your betrayal of McNulty, and it is, I have to say, it, it, it is really tremendous. And your, the accent, uh, people... People do go on about uh, the accent. Uh, could you, I mean, would you mind awfully, um, <laughs> just doing a, just doing a tiny bit of McNulty? I can't rem- I can't remember. No, all I can remember is a Baltimore accent, which I never really did. But it was because uh, I kept I get I did get praise for the accent, and and people kept coming up and saying you could do a great Baltimore accent, and I was going I I I don't I'm, I don't you know I I was told not to do a Baltimore accent because it was like it's like doing a Brummy accent here you know you people call into the, the HBO and they said, is this man retarded? Which is what the BBC did when we did a Brummy, Brummy show. We all wanted to do Brummy and they all said, no, everyone thinks it's a comedy. So they weren't, I wasn't allowed, I wasn't allowed to do a Baltimore accent. So I did a sort of general East Coast, but everyone assumed I was in Baltimore. And Baltimore accent is the strangest accent in the world. It goes, it goes are you going down the ocean, Juan? Which means, are you going down the ocean, dear? And uh, the other one is uh, two doors to go see the Orioles. <laughs> uh, so that was uh, why I didn't do it as McNulty. <laughs> and uh, I'm very grateful to the man who did uh, dub all my scenes afterwards. <laughs> yes, of course. Thank- our thanks to I Ray Winston. They didn't, they didn't reveal um, that. <laughs> <laughs> it's time he got the credit. God, he worked hard. Um, <laughs> Just, just say, what, what did I do? What did I do? What did I do? Somebody, what did I do? What the fuck did I do? You happy, you happy now, bitch? What the fuck did I do? No, you, are, uh, you are on the new... Uh, I was told this by uh, one of your 
uh, agents that you're on, the, the new Eminem album. Have you, have you liked Eminem as long as you've enjoyed the work of Method Man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I have. No, I, yeah, I always liked Eminem. And he, uh, but he called me up and he said, um, look, man, I'm, 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 I fucking love The Wire, man. And, you know, and then we met up later in London for a Diet Coke. And uh, I say, he said, you know, I've watched The Wire four times every episode, four times over. And I said, you've got to get out more, Marshall. <laughs> Jeez, I mean, he's, he's, he said, well, I'm an addictive personality, you know. I, I'm addicted to this and addicted to that. And I became addicted to the wire. And he said, and my, he said, when I was in rehab, my doctor was English and I'd found out you were English. And so I wanted you to do, do this sketch, which is called Dr. West. So I was um, understandably delighted. So I did that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did, I was in, we didn't meet initially. I was in, uh, he was in Miami with Dr. Dre and I was in Chiswick. <laughs> How often the way. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, such great pleasure. My final guest of the series, please thank Mr. Dominic West. Thanks. Before we go, we're going to have one last bit of stand-up comedy. Last night at midnight, the new winner of So You Think You're Funny, uh, a very, very, very marvellous award, which I, for instance, myself won in 2001. Uh, <laughs> Here he is to perform his now award-winning set. I know nothing more about him than he's 18 years old. Please welcome Ivo Graham! Hello. I'm a bit nervous. A lot of people said before coming out to the Fringe, you must be quite sort of nervous or awkward or sort of scared about doing these sort of gigs every day and some, you know, big gigs. And, um, and I said, yeah, on the one hand, that, that is true. But on the other hand, I don't think you can really have any concept of nervousness or awkwardness or fear till you've had to explain the concept of the your mum joke to your own mother. Um, this was a conversation I had with her a couple of weeks ago. It was an interesting one. She'd read about them in some newspaper or magazine and never heard about them and decided that I was going to be the guy to bring her up to date. And she picked her moments. Well, she picked her moment. It's just a long car journey, just the two of us. No conversation had passed between us for about five years. And she just turned to me, central locking down. She went, Ivo, tell me about these, tell me about these your mum jokes that everyone apparently tells. And I hesitated because, how do you start that conversation? And I kind of, I was sort of uh, waiting. I didn't really know what to say. And she went, come on, don't tell me. And I sort of hesitated. She went, are you going to film in? I said, that's what your mum said. Uh, <laughs> if, it, no, no, if anything, that confused her more, to be honest. Um, it was, I thought it was a very clever, very clever demonstration of how it worked, but she didn't like it one bit, to be honest. So I kind of dropped the act and I explained it a bit more seriously to her. We kind of got through it together. It was difficult, we got through it. And she kind of sighed at the end. She went, wow, that's a lot to take on board at any one time. I said, that's what your mum said. Um, she, was, she was completely out of her depth at this point. Uh, or, or, or so I thought, because I, I, I was doing my whole smug sum up. I said, as I've now shown on, on two occasions, uh, making your mum joke is remarkably easy. She went, not as easy as your mum. I said, it doesn't quite work. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant as that would be to anyone else in the world. But to me, your biological son doesn't quite make sense. She went, yes, it does. You're adopted. And with that... <laughs> There are some situations where the comebacks are too strong and you literally just have to leave the situation as quickly as possible. I guess, I, I mean, I don't know. I, it, I'm quite a sort of awkward, nervous character and I don't... Um, this is reflected perhaps uh, sometimes in my very poor sort of, you know, um, uh, success rate with, with, uh, with women. And, um, and I don't really mind this. I don't get very down about it. And if anything, sometimes I find myself sort of looking at people who are more successful and sort of find myself disgusted by their methods. And I've got a younger brother who's 13. And if, if anything, this should be an even more sort of nervous and insecure age. Uh, but he's quite good with women. He kind of sort of understands them and talks to them and all, all those things. Um, but as I say, I'm kind of repelled by his kind of, his, his, the ways he goes about it. And I was on Facebook late one night a couple of months ago. And we've all been there late night on Facebook. I was taking a quiz to see which Disney character I'd be. And, um, <laughs> 
And I, I finished the quiz, and as I was logging off, uh, I noticed that my brother had commented on a photo of himself. It was a photo I'd taken of him about a year before for his first ever profile picture. Hadn't created a massive media buzz at the time. Um, <laughs> but recently, some girls had started to comment on it, all very flattering things. Uh, oh, Ludi, looks so cute here. You look so hot here. Such a cool photo. When can I see you next, kind of thing. I didn't begrudge him the attention at all, but I was a little, as I say, disgusted by the smugness of his own response. He'd just written, girls, girls. And I don't think you should ever, ever start a sentence with girls, girls, unless you're some kind of, some kind of Bosnian pimp. Um, <laughs> girls, girls, this photo was taken a year ago when I was much younger and much cuter, but I uh, flattered to see you still interested. Peace. And I thought, that's not... <laughs> I'm glad you kind of agree with me about that. That's horrible, because I did think at the time, maybe I'm just being overly judgmental, maybe it's just me, because admittedly I was tired and sort of frustrated and angry, if anything, to find out that I'm apparently Mulan, Oriental warrior with a dark feminine secret. <laughs> that I, uh, it's difficult. You do. You get, I mean, you get, there are very few situations where you're made to feel actively humiliated about sort of being a little inactive sexually. I mean, there is one, there is a game that students play which has always, you know, got to me a little bit. It's a, it's a, it's a drinking game called Never Have I Ever. Um, and so a few, a few glints of recognition around the room, but I'll explain it for the rest of you. Um, it's played in sort of Freshers' Week and sort of times when people barely know each other and as such feel it's appropriate to reveal the most horrific things about their personal lives to each other. Um, it's kind of a sort of sexual boast game. You sit in a circle, big pile of alcohol in the middle, and you go around the circle taking it turns to say, never have I ever done it, done it, referring to the carnal act. Uh, never have I ever done it with a particular person or in a particular place or in a particular circumstance that makes it interesting. And uh, at this point, anyone round the circle who has done it with this person in this place in the circumstance has to have a swig of their drink. And you know, it's a great game, you learn a lot, it's great fun, but it is played quite a lot, perhaps too much for some people's liking, so it does come a point when, in the term when someone says, oh, let's play never have I ever again, you know, and you think, oh God, not another sober evening. And you think, you know, there must be, there must be some... It must be some kind of escape route. Um, and I came out, I had this sort of brainwave, and I can share this with you, and you can take it away with you if you ever find yourself in a similar situation. Got me through a lot of hard times. There's this, um, whenever anyone round the table says, never have I ever done it, instead of replacing done it with have had sex, you replace it with have played or participated in the game of Travel Scrabble. And stay with me on this, because I know it doesn't sound right, but then you apply the Scrabble rules to the, to the normal game and the sort of things that people usually say, and you can find yourself having a really terrific time. Um, so you're going around, and people saying the usual things, never have I ever done it on a plane, drink, never have I ever done it at a music festival, drink, never have I ever lost the erection while doing it, no drink. Uh, we all know the power of the triple word score. Um, and it was great, but you know, you, you, it, was, it was terrific and you know, if anything I was getting drunker than anyone else and people had started to notice, people were quite impressed. Some girls in particular sort of looking over going, wow, Ivo's, Ivo's social life's certainly taken a turn for the better since the last time we played this and I was like, girls, girls. Um, but we kind of, you know. It was, it was amazing, but uh, the problem was in the, in the sort of warning that I would extend to you is that I took it too far. And if you're ever doing this, be careful you don't get too drunk. You lose you know, all grip on the implications of what you were saying. So when it comes to the sentence, it's usually deployed quite late in the game because it is one of the more sort of risky ones. Um, when someone usually says, you know, as I say quite late, uh, late on, someone says, never have I ever done it with a distant family member. At which point there's usually a hushed silence around the room. Maybe one person has like a little sip and goes, our oh, third cousin, but it doesn't really count. And like, but I don't think what anyone in the room had ever seen before was a go with the balls to stand up, down his entire pint in one go, slam it back down on the table and go, oh yeah, my grandmother absolutely loves it. And uh, <laughs> if you want to lose a whole circle of friends in one fell swoop, ladies and gentlemen, that is your method. I've been Ivo Graham. Thank you very much for listening to me. Ivo Graham! Very nice to hear that So You Think You're Funny is still being won by the right sort of person. Um, <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to these podcasts from Edinburgh. Thank you to everyone who's appeared on the show over the last three weeks. And thank you to you, the audience. Do give yourselves a cheer.
while I'm off for a lie down. Goodbye. The Guardian, live at the Edinburgh Festival 2009.